This past summer, I had the pleasure of interviewing some of you in order to collect audio recordings of your testimonies. Uh, Membership interviews are always uh, one of my favorite things that I get to do because I get to hear about how the Lord has been at work in, in people's lives. And we have published four of those interviews so far. The podcast is called Gospel on the Ground. You can find it under the resources tab on our website, or you can find it on iTunes or Spotify as well. And there are five more interviews to be released in the coming weeks as well. But what I love about these interviews is that there's so much diversity in our stories. We have come from so many different places. Uh, Some grew up in the church and they don't really have any sort of blockbuster dramatic testimonies, stories of seasons of rebellion or sin. Some people have what, what we sometimes think of as just being boring testimonies because it doesn't seem like there was much of a dramatic story to it. Some people are like, I don't know why you want to interview me. My life wouldn't really even fill a haiku, much less an interview. I don't know that there's that much to talk about. And yet there's still a miraculous work of God that happens even in the most mundane testimonies. These are the sorts of testimonies and stories that I pray that my children are able to tell one day. And then there are other stories that do include some more drama, if we can put it in that way, the drama of redemption, perhaps. And then there are most other stories that fall in between those two poles. But one recurring theme that I picked up on throughout uh, the summer interviewing uh, various folks is that if you hit pause in anyone's story at a given moment in time, you may be tempted to think, man, this is not gonna end well. This is not gonna go well. This, This tragedy or this horrible sinful action This diagnosis, this crime, or this one seemingly small choice that didn't really seem like a big deal at the time, but has had such tragic and deep repercussions, or a decision that my parents made on my behalf. You might hear those stories, and and if you pause, you might think, man, any one of those would have, could have led you on a path of turning your back towards God. Any one of those things could have caused you to harden your heart towards God and not turn towards God. I would wager that all of our stories may have looked hopeless at one point or another. At a given moment in time. But in the common thread that I found in every Christian's testimony, and I'm sure that you've recognized this too, there is an utter humble appreciation for the sovereign mercy of God. We intuitively know whether it is that we we grew up in church and we've never strayed far or if we came to Christ at age 50 after years of wandering in the desert, we are truly, we are most sincerely dependent ultimately and finally upon the mercy of God in Christ. And because that's true, no one has any reason or any ground to look down upon someone else. Like you needed less You needed less grace, you needed less forgiveness than anybody else. They say that the the ground is level before the cross, that's true. We are all saved by God's grace alone. And unless his mercy was wide, none of us would have had the right to be called the children of God. And unless his mercy was powerful, none of us would be saved. But praise him, 
His mercy is wide and his mercy is deep. It is surprising and it is sovereign. It is vast and it is vigorous. In this passage this morning from Romans 9, we're gonna see that God has seen fit to prepare these vessels of mercy for glory by calling them not only from Israel, but also from the nations, from the Gentiles. So his his mercy is vast in that sense. And if he had not actively preserved a vital remnant of faithful Israelites, well then they would have hardened their hearts against God. So his mercy is vigorous. So our big idea this morning is that God's mercy is vast and vigorous. I have just two main points to follow along with this. God's mercy is vast in scope. We'll see that in verses 24 to 26. And then second, God's mercy is vigorous in preservation in verses 27 to 29. Let's pray as we get into this. Father, thank you for your, your church. And thank you for these people here this morning, just the, the privilege, the pleasure of being able to pray with them to hear them sing, it's an encouragement to to my soul. Father, we need to be encouraged by your word and by your spirit this morning. Help us to take great joy in your salvation and help us to humbly remind ourselves that we are dependent upon you and you are trustworthy, that your mercy is vast and it is vigorous. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Note first, in verses 24 through 26, God's mercy is vast in scope. We're picking up in the middle of 24, which seems in your English translation to be right in the middle of a sentence. There's an an M dash there. So I'll just complete the thought. The, The idea here is that God has prepared vessels of mercy, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As God indeed says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, here they will be called sons of the living God. God's mercy is extensive. It is vast in its scope. So though the nation of Israel was uniquely chosen in the Old Testament, They were his chosen nation. He always intended to include individuals from other nations in his people, into his spiritual family. We mentioned weeks before that in verse nine, or verse six of chapter nine, Paul gave us a precise definition of Israel, a more precise one than we had perhaps been working with before. He said, not all who are from the nation of Israel are part of true believing spiritual Israel. So there is a broad definition of Israel that speaks of them as a nation, but then there's a more accurate, a more narrow definition of Israel that only includes those who are truly dedicated to God. Only those who are faithful, spiritual children of Abraham, in that sense, are actually counted as God's offspring or Abraham's spiritual offspring. So, Not all Jews are God's chosen people in that saving sense. This is what Paul has shown us previously. And that feels like a constriction. 
when you hear it explained. It sounds exclusive, and it is. Not all from Israel belong to Israel in that sense, but as Paul continues, he explained that God has prepared vessels beforehand for mercy by calling them to salvation, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, the other nations, not just Israel, but the other nations as well. That's verse 24. And so he's already told us that not all from Israel belong to Israel, but now he's taking it a step further, it seems, and he's saying that some Gentiles are Israel. In other words, we're zeroing in on the idea of exactly who God's new covenant people are. How are they defined? How are they marked out? Under the old covenant, it was the nation of Israel. That was God's people. But Paul points out that under the new covenant, things have shifted. So it doesn't, it doesn't include all of ethnic Israel, only those who exercise their faith in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. But it's not limited to that nation of Israel anymore. God's people now includes those from other nations. So God has prepared vessels of mercy from the other nations, not just Israel. His mercy then is, in that sense, expansive in its extent. And this really isn't something that comes out of thin air. Paul grounds this in the Old Testament scripture, as you might imagine. Paul points to two passages from the minor prophet Hosea in the Old Testament to show how it's always been God's goal to include individuals from the nations into his people. Hosea 2.23, he alludes to, which says, Hosea 2.23 says, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, if you're not familiar with what's happening there in the context of Hosea, you might be confused when you see that uh, no mercy and not my people are capitalized. That seems strange. Why are those proper nouns? Well, it's because they're names of people. They're names of people. Hosea was a prophet to Israel. And the role of a prophet historically in the Old Testament was always to call the covenant people of God back to obedience to the covenant that they had made with God. Typically, prophets use words to do that. They will bring a word of the Lord. There are occasions when they, they act out spiritual dramatizations of spiritual truths. So in Hosea's instance, uh, he, he acts something out that perhaps you know about. There's been a covenant that has been made between God and Israel, right? God and his covenant people. And it's described almost like a marriage relationship in the Old Testament. We can see it all over the place. Israel, do you take Yahweh to be your God? We do. Yahweh, do you take Israel to be your people? I do. This is how that covenant relationship between God and his people were described. Just one example from Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 verses 10 through 13 says, you are standing today, this is Moses uh, addressing Israel, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops the wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. Note that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Oh, as we know, some of Israel rejected God, didn't they? 
they began to worship other false gods in idolatry. And so the prophet was sent, Hosea, prophet is sent by God to call them back to faithfulness to that covenant that they had made with God. In this particular instance, the prophet Hosea was instructed in a unique way to act out a dramatization of what is happening here spiritually. Israel had been unfaithful to her covenant with her God, like an unfaithful wife to her husband. So God told the prophet to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. They had a daughter that they named No Mercy, as they were instructed to do, because God was going to have no more mercy on Israel because they had been so unfaithful to the covenant. And then they had another child. That child was named Not My People because Israel had broken the covenant. You see, the covenant was meant to signify that Yahweh would be their God and Israel would be his people. But they are not his people in any meaningful sense. They're not submitting to him as their God. Israel's unfaithfulness would be punished and they would, they would turn from their idolatry and back to God. And in like fashion, Hosea's wife would return to him after leaving the man that she had been living with and he would forgive her and their relationship would be restored. And God would again have mercy on Israel. And that's why Hosea 2.23 says that he will have mercy on no mercy and will say to not my people, you are my people. There's a spiritual reality here as Hosea has prophesied about God's relationship with the 10 northern tribes of Israel. That's what's happening in Hosea's context, but Paul points back to that, that passage, and he says, well, that happened, but that was prophesying in an ultimate sense, in a bigger sense, that God has always intended to call those who were not his people to be his people. He always intended to expand the borders in that sense of who would be included in the faithful covenant relationship with him as his beloved. He includes an allusion to Hosea 1.10 as well. Hosea 1.10 says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. In other words, in that place where there was no faithful covenant relationship with God out there in the pagan nations outside of Israel, they would be called children of the living God. Paul is perhaps emphasizing the need to bring this message of the gospel out into those nations, into those places, to meet people with this message of the gospel where they're at. Remember, this is in part, Romans is in part a missionary letter. He's raising support, getting people excited to bring the gospel to Spain, to those who are not God's people in that nation, to let them know that anybody can get in on this deal. Jesus is the true Israel, and those who belong to Christ, by their union with him, become true Israel. This is probably a hopeful message as you can find uh, in scripture. Those who are not his people, now his people. Here's a shocking question to ask, just reading through this text, ask this question. If you don't belong to God as part of his people, to whom do you belong? Somebody got the right answer over here. That was not rhetorical, I'm, I welcome response, that's great. 
If you don't belong to God, to whom do you belong? The answer is not nobody. It's not an option. The answer is not yourself. It's not how it works. Paul alludes to the book of Hosea as a way of illustrating what it means to be called God's people. It is to be an unfaithful, rebellious, restless, alienated, hard-hearted child of the devil who now is forgiven. But is not just forgiven, is actually now restored and embraced. But not even is just embraced, not only that, is actually called the beloved of God. Friends, have you lost sight of what you've been saved from? Have you lost sight of what you've been saved into and the blessed community of the church? The covenant promises, the covenant blessings of God did not belong to you. They did not apply to you. And yet, in Christ, by faith and through his work, now they do. You who once were far off now have been brought near by the blood of the cross. So the ones who were rejected as children of the devil now have the doors flung wide open and the invitation comes, come all who are thirsty. This is a great time just to be reminded that none of us is hopeless. None of us is hopeless. Just this week, someone came into the church office to say thanks. A couple of months ago, someone on our staff extended mercy uh, in a tangible sense to someone who had been coming into the, to the church office for months uh, and for years, in fact, from time to time. Uh, this person was very clearly high, uh, very clearly took a lot of patience and, and care in order to deal with this person. Uh, but she came back into the office this week just to say thanks. She was clean. She had been sober, and she just wanted to say that she appreciated how she was treated by the member of the staff here. I took that as an admonition. It is so easy for me to live and to act as if God and his arm isn't mighty to save. I can look at somebody's story in the moment and be like, well, I know where that's going. Hmm, no, I don't. Shame on me. It's as if we don't think God can step into someone's story. If we don't think God can step into someone's life and turn a tragedy into a story of hope that will be a part of their testimony in the future whether it's in one moment or whether it's over the course of years, no one should be given up in despair. God lives, he is the living God, he is active and he is at work in and amongst you and his people. Friend, if, if you have been marked by evidence that you don't belong to the people of God through outward, serious, unrepented sin, you too must not give up yourself in despair. God is so free and God is so gracious in his dispensation of mercy that even if you would like to disown yourself, he won't. He will call you his beloved. Repent from your sin, turn to Christ, pursue the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in, Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and if you're stuck in a cycle, reach out for help. We would be glad to help you. This is what we're here for together with one another. 
So not only is God's mercy vast in its extent, which is to say that it includes even those whom we might least expect, God's mercy is powerful to preserve those whom he calls. We keep reading in verses 27 to 29. Second, God's mercy is effective in preservation. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's mercy is powerful to preserve those whom he calls. Remember, Paul's been working through some very difficult concepts, difficult ideas in this portion of the letter, that God made these promises to Israel that we now understand to have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, and yet the people to whom these promises were made aren't all saved. How's that possible? Well, not all children of Abraham are children of God, but some are. That is the concept of a remnant, that word that comes up here in the text. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. There is a faithful remnant within national Israel who have embraced Christ as their Messiah. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. They are the remnant in this instance. And so Paul turns to the prophet Isaiah to establish this idea in scripture. First he alludes to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, which says, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. So, just the way that Hosea, the prophet, was used to describe the Gentiles' inclusion into God's people, Paul now is using Isaiah to establish the concept that he is, that God is, preserving a remnant within ethnic Israel who also believe. The prophet Isaiah brought a message of judgment like Hosea to Israel for their disobedience to the covenant. But it, uh, as all prophets do, he also brought a, a message of hope. Isaiah spoke about the restoration of Jerusalem. That was his big overarching theme throughout the book of Isaiah. But there will be judgment in the meantime. And though Israel had a large population, it says that they're described there as like the sand of the sea, there's a lot of them, only a remnant of them would return to the land after their time of judgment and exile. Their destruction would not be complete because he would ensure that some within ethnic Israel would return to the land. The Lord would not wipe them out completely, so God preserved a faithful remnant within Israel. And then he alludes to Isaiah 1, verse 9, which says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's preservation is the only hope of salvation. Now, if you recall Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wiped out entirely. There is no remnant of Sodom and Gomorrah. God struck them down in righteous judgment because of their rampant sinful debauchery. 
They were a detestable people, according to God. You might remember the incident with Lot when the men of the city surrounded his home and demanded that Lot hand over his two male guests so that they could be sexually abused by these cities, uh, the, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19. And it's recorded for us there as a, an example of true depravity of a pagan nation. But in Judges chapter 19, Judges chapter 19, we read a shockingly similar story that happens with Israel. A Levite wandered into an Israelite town called Gibeah, and the men of the city there, the tribe of Benjamin, surrounded the home that he was in, and they demanded that he be handed over so that they could sexually abuse him. The story gets worse from there. It's one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history, and the point is, Israel was not exempt from great wickedness. This is not something that just the pagan nations are caught up in. There are moments in the history of Israel that if you take a picture, it looks and sounds as bad as if not worse than the surrounding pagan nations. They should know better. But the Lord of hosts, that's a military title for God, the God of angel armies, if he had been completely just in carrying out his judgment against Israel, his wrath, his righteous judgment, they would have been wiped off the face of the earth just as completely as Sodom and Gomorrah was. But God did not only act justly towards Israel. He acted mercifully. He preserved some so that a remnant would remain. The Lord spared a remnant, a seed, so that Israel's offspring might continue. He would be faithful to the promises that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And we know that, from having read earlier in Romans 9, from their race, according to the flesh, came the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever, amen, the true offspring of Abraham. John Salehammer is an Old Testament scholar, and I think he sums up what we found here so far in Romans 9 concisely in three short statements. He says, not all Israelites are Israelites, not all Jews are God's chosen, and not all God's chosen are Jews. I think this is the flow of the logic of the argument that's coming through here in chapter nine. God includes Gentiles into his people, and he preserves a remnant within Israel as his people. So that explains how the, the church in Paul's day was made up of so few Israelites. We would have rightly expected that they would make up the majority of the church. Right? They should be exposed to these promises, the covenant, gospel, the covenant gospel promises that have been made to them about the good news of this Messiah. They were so close to the kingdom, but they never entered. But God's mercy is vast in its inclusion of the nations, and it is vigorous in its power to keep those whom he called. God preserved of his own will a remnant of faithful believers within ethnic Israel. Isaiah's testimony about Israel is probably like your own testimony, Christian. If God had not set his powerful love upon you first, you would have continued in stubborn, ignorant rebellion. None of us deserves God's mercy, and yet he extends it in surprising ways. So do you see how this, this doctrine 
of God's election is a demonstration of his goodness and his love. Had he not chosen to save a remnant, we would all have remained vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Unless he graciously called us his people, unless he graciously called us his beloved, we would be ruined. But God preserves a remnant. He did it with Israel, and we can say that he's doing it now in his church. Not all Israel is Israel. I think we could rightly say that not all those who take the name of Christian are Christian. Jesus himself says, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter seven. He goes on, everyone who builds his life on his teaching, on the gospel, however, will not be put to shame. We've seen in recent surveys uh, that, are, that are troubling that there are some within evangelicalism that are confused about basic core doctrines of Christianity. 43% of evangelical respondents in a recent survey agreed with this statement, quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. You can go to the stateoftheology.com to read more shocking survey results, as if you'd like. Just to be clear, that is 43% of self-described evangelicals who either don't understand or deny passages like Romans 9.5 that plainly say that Christ is God over all, blessed forever. That is about as clear and central as you can get to the gospel. That is not something that you can reject. To deny Jesus' divinity is to deny the gospel. It seems the concept of a faithful remnant might, might do two things to us. When we think about this concept of a remnant, it might either make us prideful or it might make us anxious. This concept of God's remnant might make us prideful or anxious. There are some who like to boast about how their very narrow tribe of Christianity is alone, the one true remnant. Everybody who agrees with me on this, every issue, the minor details and stuff, well, they're the faithful remnant. Somehow, the focus of attention in God preserving his remnant shifts to a selfish stamp of approval of our own narrowly defined specific convictions on secondary and tertiary issues. I hope that never characterizes us as a church at Trinity Bible Church. I never want to get the impression or give the impression that Trinity is the faithful remnant. Oh, if only everybody did things like us, well then the remnant would be larger, by definition. No. We are grateful to know that God is work, working in and among us, in spite of us, and he is at work in and among our brothers and sisters across the valley, and across the state, across the, 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 the nation, and across the world. So we may not become prideful over thinking that we are somehow working or willing our way into this remnant and that it defines us and we've worked our way into this exclusive group. We ought rather to be humbled to be vessels of mercy. Just a quick note, if you find somebody on YouTube who tells you that they are the remnant and they have access to secret knowledge, run. Unsubscribe. Unclick the bell. 
If somebody says that they have access to secret knowledge from God and they are the faithful remnant, you've, you've stumbled upon a cult. That is not what we want to engage with here. If you have questions about a channel that you found, you're like, I'm not sure about this teacher, please send them to us. I would love to help you not stumble into heresy. It's the least I could do. <laughs> but the concept of, of a remnant might not only make us prideful, it might make us anxious. Like maybe it's first come, first serve. Maybe the quota has already been filled. Maybe there's no more room at the table if there's a faithful remnant. Maybe it's small. We should be clear that we don't know how many people will be saved. But we also shouldn't assume that it's going to be smaller than it needs to be. After all, God promised that Abraham's children would be more numerous than the stars, didn't he? And Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 say that there will be a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just a quick note there, if you took a survey around the throne room of God, 100% of people would say that Jesus is God. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Friends, if you, if you hear the invitation to the gospel to, to come, all those who are thirsty, if you hear that invitation, you are invited to the feast. Don't think I'm not part of the remnant. That's not how this works. Come to Jesus. Come to him out of your darkness, out of your sorrow, out of your night. There is hope. He will not turn you away when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, God's mercy is vast and it is vigorous. God calls and God keeps Christian, he will not let your soul be lost. Take confidence in this. His promises shall last, and he will hold you fast. Let's pray.